Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today, before we start the show, I would like to bring up some business things that have kind of been on my mind so that you can know where to get more Where Am I To Go. First off, I'd like to talk about the Facebook page at Where Am I To Go podcast. It's on Facebook, and we've been posting some wonderful pictures of some of the places that we've been and some of the adventures that we've had. Not everything that we go and do is made into a podcast, and so we take pictures at different places and post those pictures so that you guys can enjoy some of the different places we've been. Also, I really am interested in listener feedback. I have an email address at whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is whereamitogopodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear some of the listeners' comments and some of their ideas of places that might be interesting to visit and go and do. Today we're with Kevin, and we are at the Combat Air Museum in Topeka, Kansas. Almost forgot where I was. And uh, this was highly recommended to me, so we called Kevin. He was gracious enough to say he would take us through here and take a look at uh, what all they have. So, hello, Kevin, and let's get started. Hello, Lauren. Happy to talk to you and your visitors. Uh, if you're in the in the Midwest and have time to come to the capital city, Kansas, and you like airplanes, uh, this is pretty much a must-see attraction, I think. This is looking really, really good. You've got planes hanging from the ceiling. You've got planes on the ground. Uh, lots of display, it looks like. So I'm excited. We have uh, <clears throat> 42 airplanes and two hangars. The hangar we're in now was the last hangar built here during World War II when Topeka Army Airfield was, was training bomber pilots. Our south hangar was built in 53 at the height of the Cold War. So the hangars themselves are pretty historic and, and contain a lot of historic aircraft and displays besides. That's cool. Hey, how long did they train these pilots when, uh, when they were here? Didn't take long. Obviously, by the time they came here, they'd already, they'd already learned to fly a primary airplane and then done advanced training and then had done their multi-engine training at other bases. <clears throat> they got crewed up, came here, probably already had some time on the heavy bombers they were operating. This field began training B-17 pilots, then switched to B-24 pilots. And as the end of the war was approaching, it became a B-29 training base. So the, the crews had all learned elsewhere. They came here to refine, uh, refine their bombing and navigation skills. And uh, actually, it would drop off an airplane to be modified. And while it was being modified, they would use a loaner airplane here to work on their skills while the airplane is being brought up to a war standard. Oh, really? So they did all the work on the airplanes right here in these hangars? Exactly. Uh, the book called The Wild Blue covers George McGovern's career as a bomber pilot, and in that book he talks about bringing his airplane straight from the factory to Topeka Army Airfield, and they were here about two weeks, and they modded the airplane. They couldn't do it on the, on the factory production line because it would slow things down, so they cranked out the airplane, sent them out to outlying bases for upgrades to warfighting standards, and then while the airplanes were being modified, the crews went out. There was a bombing range south of here. They, they did navigational trips all around the country. They kept up their warfighting skills while their airplane is being upgraded. Okay. 
And you said this started in 1942. Within six months of Pearl Harbor, they're breaking ground here for this airfield. And so we trained bomber crews here until the end of the war. They closed down. They used the hangars for uh, grain storage during a couple of bumper crops. Okay. And then by 19, it reopened briefly for the Korean War. <clears throat> Once the war was over, they shut down again. But then here, we're worried the Russians are coming. And so the base reopened, uh, housing a couple strategic air command wings and uh, was home to a strategic air command unit until 65. And then tactical air command with C-130s came in. And uh, once Vietnam was winding down, Forbes was one of many Air Force bases closed. And so 73, the Air Force base closed, was handed over to the city. And now it's a joint use field with both civilian and military. At the north end of the field is the Kansas Air National Guard refueling unit with Boeing KC-135s. Our next door neighbors here at the south end is a, our uh, Kansas Army National Guard unit flying Black Hawk helicopters. I was going to say, when we were coming in, I was seeing the helicopters and the sky cranes and all that stuff that was pretty cool looking. This is a, a kind of a, a quiet airfield, but more goes on here than people realize. And uh, there's an air show almost every day. Really? Wow. And as we come into, as we come into the museum here, I'm assuming that you're starting off with World War I because I'm seeing biplanes and uh, it looks like some really early aircraft. Uh, as, well, as we come in. We think we have one of the largest collections of World War I aircraft west of the Mississippi. Now, most of these are replicas built by, these, and they've all flown, by the way. Uh, the, the, most of these are airplanes that you can buy plans for or a kit. Oh, really? Build them in your garage with literally pop rivets, blind rivets, and aluminum tubing. Put a Volkswagen engine on the front and off you go. You know, to really? Fly patrol. There's a group of builders over in Kansas City who have built these and flown them. And um, the thing is, once you build one and fly it a bit, you want to build another. But if there's only room in the hangar for one airplane, what do you do? Now, <laughs> you, can, you can take the chance of liability and sell your amateur-built airplane to somebody and hope that nothing bad happens. Or you can cut it up. Or you can donate it to a museum with the proviso that it never fly again. And we've been a beneficiary of some of these Kansas City-based builders who... After they finish the one and want to build another, donate the airplane to us, and that's pretty much what you see here. Okay. And the word combat in your air museum, is that because this is strictly military planes? Or exactly. Okay. Exactly. Cool. So the first thing you see when you come in the museum is a big yellow biplane, the, the Curtis Jenny. This is a replica built by a gentleman who was a Boeing engineer. And uh, it's spot-on, full-size Jenny, except he had the slightly shortened top wing to accommodate his uh, hangar. Okay. But otherwise, it's full-size. Now, the interesting thing is, in the interest of safety, the fuselage is a welded seal tube. You can't see that in the museum here. But next to it, we have a, an actual Jenny fuselage with the wooden, wooden framework and, and a wire braced and all that. Okay. This is what passed as a, for a roll cage in 1916. You can assess for yourself wow. how much protection this wooden wooden frame might have given you in a crash. Not much, but it's all held together with metal bracketry on the corners in order to reinforce the, the wood frame. And what it, it almost looks like it's pine or fir. Probably spruce or ash. Okay. And, uh, yeah. It's pretty cool, though, but he, he went ahead and put a metal frame in Just, his. Yes. We've learned a few things about aviation safety over the last hundred years, and... 
But the, the Jenny, as I said, like all the rest of the machines here, have all fl it flew. And uh, some of the folks that helped found the museum talk about how the, the uh, builder would fly the airplane right in front of the museum and with a, a, a strong enough wind could almost make it hover right by the museum. You could hold a conversation with him, too. So, Huh. That is, that's pretty wild. Okay. And then we come on around here, some more custom built. Actually, you've got one with a really neat wing structure. It's kind of uh, uh, sculpted or... or uh, In, inspired by a, uh, oh, I can't recall the type of plant, but uh, the uh, pod or seed pod of a, of rather like a, and having a, having a senior moment now, trying to recall the, the type of, uh, anyway, that's what inspired the wing shape. And uh, this is a replica of a, <coughs> of a Rumpler Taub and... It's a monoplane, carried two people, and it was much larger than, again, most of these replicas are about 80% uh, full size. But the Taub had a great, long, a very long range, and uh, they called, there was one called the uh, 5 o'clock Taub. A German airplane would fly over Paris every day at 5 o'clock taking pictures. Oh, really? And, uh, in okay. 1914, it was, it was uh, state of the art. And then you've got a triplane here that has the machine gun, I'm sure, replicas set up in order to make it look more like the Red Baron's plane. Exactly, and that's exactly who it's, what it's uh, marked as. Yeah. And, and again, that's, that's small scale. 80%, but you can imagine that a full-size triplane would not have been much bigger than this. It's uh, that's, uh, awfully close. Right. And again, most of these World War I replicas were powered by Volkswagen engines, and 80% is about, the, about as much airplane as a Volkswagen will pull through the air, so that's... That's they why they're scaled to, down they a wee bit. Do have to change the heads and stuff on those in order to take not the many, spark plugs or not? Well, some there is one mod for that, and some guys do that. And everybody does, but it's a great idea. I thought a, it was a great kind idea. of a required thing, but well, it was again, The key is that they're amateur-built airplanes, and the rules are much different. And okay. I'm happy to point out that the safety, the safety, rating of, uh, or the safety record of amateur-built airplanes is awfully good. And some of the most advanced airplanes flying in American skies today are actually... Um, Amateur build airplanes. Really? You can put more advanced things in there that don't have to meet some stringent aircraft certification rules that, like electronic ignition, things like that, they're really superior to some of the 30s based magneto ignition systems we use today in certified airplanes. Really? That's pretty amazing. And then you come on over here, you've got a, a helicopter. This is a, a a uh, Bell UH-1 Iroquois, or better known as the Huey. It's kind of the, the symbol or the signature aircraft of the Vietnam War. This is one of two Hueys we have. This, I'll, I'll point out now, this has a larger cabin. It's a later model uh, helicopter, later model Huey. The one we have in our south hangar is uh, an earlier version. And once the larger Hueys came out, the early smaller ones were turned into gunships, as you'll okay. see when we get to the south hangar. This particular Huey came to us from our neighbors, the uh, Army National Guard next door, and uh, it's got a combat history. We have pictures of this very helicopter in our files that show it when it was used to extract some U.S. soldiers from Laos when we said we weren't there. Very bad gun, very bad firefight, and uh, this helicopter pulled them out, but it just took quite a beating. And when you see those pictures, I figure this helicopter had to whistle as it went through the air. But it got the guys back, found its way back here to the States, went through depot maintenance. There are no bullet holes or patch holes to be seen today, but uh, 
It's got a combat history all its own. It ended the flying days of the Army National Guard. We feel fortunate to have got it here. We did a podcast at the uh, Arizona Military Museum in Phoenix, and they have one of these inside of their uh, show, their, their museum. And it's it's a pretty heavily uh, Vietnam-based museum, but it's it's a pretty cool museum if you ever get a chance to see it. Sure, it'd be fascinating. It's it's got a little bit different setup on the inside. Uh, this one's got seats coming all the way down. Must have carried what uh, twelve people. Well, it depends on how many how badly you're being shot at and how many folks you need to lift out. There, <laughs> the the uh, manufacturer will tell you it'll lift a certain weight, but uh, in in the case of an emergency. It's uh, whatever the pilot and the crew thought they could uh, load and get there. it, get going. So wow, and it's fascinating working at this museum. I'm a, a veteran myself, but uh, to one of my favorite things is meeting the veterans that come here and hearing some firsthand stories. One gentleman was uh, was given this helicopter the eye, and I just had to chat with him, and it turned out he, he was a Vietnam veteran, and uh, they were going into to re. Fight again, as so often happened in Vietnam. They'd capture an area and then leave it, and then the, the Viet Cong would, would infiltrate and they have to go back and fight them again. They'd fight for the same territory countless times. So going into this really bad place yet again, and they knew it was going to be bad, and then no sooner touchdown, a bunch of the guys are hit and injured, and they start right away within two minutes of being there calling for medevac help. He himself had had a bullet grazed in, on his neck, and the medic wanted him evacuated because of just millimeters separating him from an arterial bleed. So he called in a, a medevac helicopter. The first one gets shot down and, and crashes within yards of him. The second one comes in, and they load the wounded aboard. He's the last one loaded aboard. He's laying on the, the floor of the helicopter. And as they're climbing out, the door gunner's gun is almost vertical. That's how close the bad guys were. As they wow. climb out, he hears and feels something, and suddenly there's a pinpoint of light above him, and a bullet had come up through the floor of the helicopter, passed between his side and his arm, and exited through the, the top of the cabin. The door gunner stops and rips the insulation back to see if anything vital had been hit. It hadn't, and so they carried on to the hospital. And as soon as they landed, at every triage point, they waved him to the next one, waved him to the next one, and he goes right in for surgery. And they said if he'd sneezed or something like that, that... He'd have bled wow. out, that'd have been that. And then he said, do you see anything here? And it's just the tiniest mark on his neck. It was 50 years ago. But just, uh, you, can see, you can see in some of our visitors, the, the look in their eye, they've been there, done that, and, uh, and sometimes they're willing to talk about it. It's fascinating. I'll bet it is. I'll bet you hear all kinds of stories. <clears throat> and a lot of those guys, they just flat out won't talk. You know? yeah. Or at least that's been my experience. So in World War II, they figured nothing to talk about because everybody else went and did it. And in Vietnam, uh, based on the way a lot of guys were treated when they got back, they just learned to not talk about it, not open up until years later when folks are genuinely interested. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's something that we talked about quite a bit with that guy in, in Phoenix. You know, He said, yeah, we came back and, and we were treated so poorly. And, and he said there was no reason for any of it. And there's, you know, there's no reason. I think the public felt that too. I'm a Gulf War veteran, and when we came back, uh, that's really when people started saying, "Thank you for your service, this and that." And I, and I really, I, I always tell every Vietnam vet I ever meet, I got the welcome home that you deserved because of the way people welcomed you home. Right. More than trying to overcompensate, I felt. This is a <clears throat> very large cargo helicopter. It's a big adventure for kids that, that come to this museum because they actually get to go inside. 
And this is a very large cargo helicopter. Uh, Sikorsky. The blades on this are what, 20 foot long? Oh, probably better than that, I think. And they're still, this is a, a naval version, so the blades stow back so, they'll, so they'll, it'll fit in a hangar deck or something. This is a Marine version. It's a, an early CH-53 Sea Stallion. This is actually on loan to NASA once upon a time in its life. It's in its uh, Marine markings. And coincidentally, uh, something that happens in a couple of cases here, a former Marine who worked on this helicopter back in the 60s, uh, it, went, it went its way, he went his way. He ended up in my Air National Guard unit for a bit, retired, and he volunteers at this museum. And he was stunned when he heard we were getting a CH-53 to find it was one he had worked on when he was a kid in the Marines. Wow. So that personal connection, there's another story like that we'll talk about later. Is our and how much cargo will one of these take? Uh, a couple of Jeeps or? You, yeah, you could probably fill it up with, uh, fill, fill it up with uh, stuff before you'd overgross the helicopter. It can carry quite a bit. Uh, not only Jeeps or something like that, but uh, as you can see, the the... It's got sponsons or looks like big floats on the side. This helicopter is designed, even though it's got a ramp, to land in the water. Okay. And there's a video available on the internet that shows SEAL teams with inflatable boats. One of these copters lands, they drop the ramp. Of course, they flood the, the cabin a little bit. And the SEALs take off in their, in their uh, rubber boats right out of the helicopter. Wow. And as the helicopter climbs out, most of the water goes overboard and they go about their business. So, very... Uh, uh, versatile helicopter. And the inside of this thing is, is what, probably 10 foot wide, 40 foot long, and, and uh, 8 foot, 9 foot high? It is. I mean, and you could put a lot of stuff in here. Well, but And the back hatch drops down. Uh, the tail end of the comes helicopter into a ramp drops and, down for right. a ramp. Now, and, uh, there was a later version of this helicopter. It's still in service today at the Marines. It, they expanded the size of the helicopter, added a third engine, and now it's a CH-53 Sea Dragon and just a beast of a helicopter, remarkable machine. And then what's hard to see from here, there's a hatch in the center of the floor and uh, there's a large hook. This can do external sling oh. loads and so a, just a very capable helicopter. There's a reason the version is still flying today. It okay. can do an awful lot of jobs very well. Wow, this thing is just amazing. Just absolutely amazing. Okay, now that must be another one of the of the home built, amateur built. That's a it's an eighty percent size Airco DH two to have one to uh, push your biplane. Now the neat thing about it uh, is that from down here on the floor, you know, that engine's pretty impressive. But the cool thing is that both it and its machine gun are eighty percent uh, sized. Um, uh, what's the 3D printed. Uh, oh, okay. So we had a uh, visitor here from Wales who was uh, teaching at, at the University of Kansas, and he's an industrial design professor, and he had access to a very remarkable 3D printer. He did some research and had his, uh, had his uh, students print this 3D engine. And, and it runs? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Just so for looks. Just, just for looks. Right. And this, this plane does not have the engine in the front with the propeller in the front. The, the propeller and engine are sitting in the back. It's, nine, it's World War I, and we've barely learned to fly, and now we want to use the airplane to kill each other or take pictures, and then you've got to go kill the crew that's taking pictures so they can't go home and show the boss what, what your side has. But it was hard to figure out how to, how to shoot a bullet 
through a propeller. The first, the, the first attempts were by a French pilot who put armor plate on the, on the roots of his propeller. And then when he'd go after German airplanes, start shooting, some of the bolts would go between the blades, but some would hit the metal and bounce off. Okay. Not, not the, the best way to do business. No. no. Um, remarkably, uh, Anthony Foker, the legendary Dutch designer who designed airplanes for the Germans, had offered his services to the Allies first, and they said, thanks, but no thanks. And one of his ideas was for a synchronizing gear to allow bolts to pass safely between the blades. And they said, no thanks, you know, we don't need those. So, but the Germans were very interested, and, and so that put the, uh, the, that put the Allies on the, on the back foot for a while until they came up with their own synchronizing system. But in its time, early in the war, the DH-2 was a very successful fighter. With an open field of fire at the front, the pilot flew the airplane. He could swivel the gun or, or lock it in place. And, uh, but the British were, they stuck with the, the pusher airplane for a long time for both fighters and observation airplanes. Obviously, it'd be a bit of a hindrance if someone gets behind you and wants to shoot you down. It's hard right. to, you still have to shoot through a propeller, so. Huh. Yeah. Interesting looking little plane. It looks like it's covered with canvas that's uh, laced on. People say canvas. Actually, it was muslin, a, a, a cotton fabric okay. that was put on. You'd uh, stretch it over, the, nice and lightweight. That, that was the key thing because engines weren't very powerful back then. So everything had to be lightweight. So a wooden, fat, wooden frame covered with, uh, with cotton and used a special kind of paint called dope that would shrink the cotton, the cotton to make it taut. And, uh, and off you go. Easy. It was very lightweight, easy to repair. Bit flammable. That wasn't good, with the, no. especially when people were shooting flat, uh, incendiary bullets at you. But this is how how uh, airplanes went to war a hundred years ago. And fabric, to be honest, fabric covering is still in use today on on a on home built civilian airplane and even some factory built airplanes. <laughs> this helicopter? Yeah. This helicopter's huge. Did you look in the back? Yeah, I didn't know the helicopter. Oh, okay. <laughs> And then we've got this plane behind us. It's the MiG-21? No, this machine's an F-4 Phantom. Okay. And a I fascinating airplane. MiG-21 on the front. I'm going, what? Well, the reason, look at what's above it, a big red star. Okay. It represents, it tells you that this airplane was responsible for shooting down, or downing, let me be specific, downing a MiG-21 on 12 October 72. Okay. Now, in this instance... It did it without firing a shot. First of all, the, the F-4D had no internal gun. That, that we would ever design a fighter plane with no gun is extraordinary, but there was a time when we thought dogfighting was uh, passe. We'll just uh, you put a powerful radar on the front and go kill each other with missiles. Well, that's fine, except nobody told the, the Russians or the Chinese or the North Vietnamese. And so suddenly American pilots find themselves dogfighting, which they never trained to do early on. Dogfighting cannon-armed, uh, very agile, fast jets. And on top of that, the missiles they carried were not as reliable as they are today, so it made life interesting. In the case of this airplane, this, uh, this Phantom engaged a MiG-21, and probably with a, with a very uh, inexperienced pilot, and they just chased the guy into the ground. They followed and just got right after him, and the guy flew into the ground. Never fired a shot. Wow. A MiG-kill's a MiG-kill, whether you... Whether you expand ordnance or not, and so 
And then you have missiles, or this thing's right. still all armed with the, with the now, missiles. The way our, our Phantom is loaded is it wouldn't have gone into combat this way, but it's, we did this to show what it was capable of carrying. On the outboard stations are extra fuel tanks. American fighters are outstanding world class, but they're very thirsty, and that's how my Air National Guard unit made a living. We'd launch tankers up. You'd fill an airplane. An airplane can only take off with so much weight, so to maximize the bomb load, minimize the fuel load, once you're off the ground, meet a tanker somewhere, fill up, go drop bombs, hit the tanker again, come off the target, and go home, and then start all over again. And you were flying the tanker? I was a mechanic on, on the KC-135s. I've always wondered, how in the world do you line those things up in order to be able to... to There's a lot of training involved, but, but visually it's very simple. The belly of the tanker has a long yellow stripe that lets the receiver, or the airplane getting fuel, line up behind it. And then... You can do it with over the radio or radio silence. Again, that's where training comes in. But the boom operator who's watching this, who operates a refueling boom that actually passes the fuel, can talk to the receiver pilot and explain to him up, forward, this and that. But so much of it, it just anybody who flies anything in the Air Force or the Marines and Navy, this in-flight refueling is a daily. It's you just train constantly, and wow. it's uh, second nature. In 2011, we put together a refueling group made of guard and reserve and regular Air Force tankers in our own Spain, supporting uh, operations over Libya. And uh, we were also gassing NATO airplanes there, and they didn't refuel very often, and the, most of them used the Navy style uh, hose and drogue. Looks like a badminton birdie on the end of a hose. They didn't refuel very often or weren't used to it, and they, we damaged and lost more drogues because of their lack of experience. So... Huh. Constant, constant practice, constant training just makes a very difficult job very routine. Yeah, it, just, it just seems like when you're both going two or three hundred miles an hour and trying to get a needle in a, you know, in a thread so a needle. It's... So then let's, let's do it at night in a thunderstorm <laughs> with a battle-damaged aircraft receiver. And that's, that's very interesting, too. There's lots of stories from Vietnam and wow. elsewhere about tankers bringing damaged airplanes back. Wow. This one here must be Canadian. Well, the paint or shows you it's a Canadian airplane. Uh, this is a, a Harvard. That's a, this is a Canadian-built version of a, of a famous American trainer called the Texan. It was such a legendary trainer that the newest uh, fixed-wing propeller trainer the Air Force uses today is also called the Texan. Texan II. Uh, this probably was the standard trainer for most Allied Air Forces in World War II. England sent pilots to America and Rhodesia and elsewhere, places that were safer to learn to fly, and, and there were Harvards and, and Texans every place. Uh, this particular one belonged to a gentleman. His name is under the canopy there. He's a Canadian who, uh, who had flown in the RCAF on, I think, even this very airplane. Years later, he makes a bit of money in the oil oil business. Well, here in the states, and uh, when he heard of some T6s being or Harvards being sold by the Canadian Air Force, went and found one and bought it and lived for a while before before the museum purchased it. Wow, this is so I I love airplanes, and this is just so cool. Now you, you notice earlier you saw the MiG-21 on the on the splitter plate on this Phantom, and so. That's the kind of airplane this Phantom shot down. That's a MiG-21. Okay. This happens to be a Czech version on loan to us, but that's the kind of airplane. 
the big difference, look how much smaller it is. Oh, yeah. And uh, smaller target. Uh, it was designed as a point interceptor. Didn't have a lot of, didn't have a lot of uh, time in the air, but the North Vietnamese were extremely smart about how they, how they used their airplanes. All they had to do was disrupt a bombing raid, and their job was done. They didn't have to shoot things down. And that's but the actual wingspan right there? That's it. That's exactly it. That is really short, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, uh, just a little baby. Excellent interceptor, though. Had a radar to help help uh, find the target. And uh, the Soviets learned in World War II the value of putting cannons in airplanes, and other people were using machine guns. America was late to the party. We were we used mostly machine guns until very late in the war. But the Germans and the Russians figured out the importance of cannons early on, and makes a big difference. So, but then so this this shows up with its cannons fighting this much larger much heavier fighter with no internal gun, just missiles. And so depending on where you were, if you're close in, the missile needs a bit of time to come off the wing and start tracking. Right. And uh, the Phantom had a mix of these uh, Sidewinder heat-seeking missiles and Sparrow radar-guided missiles underneath. It was only late in the, later on that when they realized they needed a gun, they put this 20-millimeter rotary cannon you see here, the Vulcan, in a pod and bowled that to the belly. Well, then you see film shot from under the belly of the phantom when it's firing. It looks like somebody out in the backyard watering their, their garden. The bullets just go everywhere. Huh. The very last versions of the phantom had an internal gun, and that made a, a pretty deadly fighter even more lethal, and fighter planes should have guns, and we, we learned that lesson from Vietnam again. At my advanced age, I can remember when the Navy was flying the Grumman F-11F in the Blue Angels, and uh, I always thought it was one of the most beautiful jets that ever flew. They're a lot of fun to watch, too. I've seen them a couple of different times on accident, driving down the highway, and all of a sudden the Blue Angels are at an air show someplace, and, and uh, it's just phenomenal to watch what those pilots can do. They'll be a little more exciting this year because they've just given up their 20-year-old uh, legacy F-18s for the, the latest version, the F-18E, and uh, it's about 25% larger airplane with um, much more powerful engines. And yeah, the Blue Angels show will be much more spectacular this year than it has in previous years. Huh. This airplane sat at, a, at the Lawrence, Kansas airport. Lawrence is the home to the University of Kansas, and they, they have a, a world-class aerospace engineering course over there. And this sat at the Lawrence airport for a long time. They had used it in some program, and then it just had weeds growing around it, and we were able to acquire it and uh, repaint it. And uh, you see a name on the side of the airplane, Lieutenant Hal Loney, how long he lives down in Texas, and uh, it's been you know fifty some years since he flew the jet, but he still keeps in touch. Comes up here usually once a year to check on his airplane, <laughs> make sure we're taking good care of it. Well, that's good. He's a great guy, and uh, it's neat to have that connection to someone who flew the airplane of the Blue Angels. Now the airplane sitting here, the black jet you see here, is a MiG-15. It was donated to us by a uh, local businessman who. Uh, has a fascinating uh, a fascination with aviation. He's owned an interesting collection of airplanes over the years. We had this, and he told me the reason that I donated this MiG-15 to your museum is because if I didn't, this would be the airplane that killed me. <laughs> the, the F-15 is a, is a pretty basic airplane. It, when Americans got their first look at it, they thought, well, it looks like it's built in a tractor factory, and some of them might have been. But with a bit of appreciation, you realize that the the MiG-15, the, the first Soviet jet to see widespread service, 
had flush rivets where it needed them, but roundhead rivets where it didn't need them. And pretty simple and straightforward, and uh, so much so that there are a lot of these have, with the, uh, with the end of the Cold War, a number of these have found their way into the hands of uh, collectors and, and uh, pilots here in America, and they're flown for fun, for sport. You can get time in a two-seat MiG-15. But again, you look at this, and look at the weapons in the front, and this is a Korean War vintage airplane. Had a couple weapons here, so it's got a 23-millimeter cannon. You can line up on somebody, and you start, you start shooting with the 23, and when you start seeing hits on them, then you select the 37-millimeter cannon, and that'll take a wing off. Wow. Sep yeah, so. It was lighter, it could go a little higher than the F-86s and Navy airplanes it was fighting, but it had some disadvantages. If you got it in a dive, the windscreen would fog over, and now you can't oh, see who, wow. you can't see the Americans that are trying to kill you, and American pilots were, the big difference was the, uh, the amount of training that uh, Allied pilots had in their F-86s and the fighters they used. Wasn't always the case with MiG pilots, although some of the, some of the uh, MiGs we encountered over, over uh, North Korea were being flown by Soviet pilots who'd survived flying in World War II and knew a thing or two. So a very interesting time. This MiG-15 is sitting next to a Grumman F-9F Panther and it's interesting to look at the two because the MiG has got swept wings. Uh, the, the MiG-15 benefited from, post, from uh, Nazi German research into uh, aerodynamics. And the, the Panther was, did not quite benefit from that. But they had something in common. They were both powered by pretty much the same engine. Oh, really? uh, at the end of the war, the Allied nation that had the best developed jet engines was Great Britain. And at the end of the war, for some reason, they felt compelled to give some examples of their world-class engine to the Soviets. That was through the Lend-Lease program, wasn't it? No, this is after the war, right after the war. So the, okay. the Brits give, give them some engines, and they said, thank you very much, and they took them back to the Soviet Union, reverse-engineered them, built them. They offered some to us, and we, we took them, bought licenses to produce them. And so this Panther was flying basically as was the MiG-15, with the same uh, British-inspired jet engine. The, ex the engine from this Panther is right here. And we've got a nice collection of engines here. And, and the first thing you see here is that, unlike the airliner you might have got on last, the air doesn't flow straight through the engine, an axial flow engine. This is called a centrifugal flow engine. And at the very front, you see... You see a, a round series of veins that look like something out of a vacuum cleaner. Right. And so that's the best comparison. So this would draw air in. It spins it centrifugally. And then it goes through these, this plenum into these burner cans. You squirt fuel in or light it, and out it goes. So the air doesn't flow straight through. It goes around and around and then straight out. Not as efficient as one where the air goes straight through. I was just going to ask how the efficiency compared. Exactly. So that's... We've got, as, as we'll see in a bit, we've got a nice selection of both piston and, and jet engines here that um, especially helpful in explaining to folks, especially children, how jet engines work. There. And thank goodness jets came along because piston engines were getting, as they got bigger, they got more complex, less reliable, and uh, turbine jet engines came along just as we needed them. And how come the wings folded up? Is this one that was on an aircraft carrier? It is. That's Once again, uh, space is at a premium on an aircraft carrier, and right. so... 
most naval airplanes, anything they can do to, reduce, to make it a smaller size, because once the airplane lands, they fold the wings, they put it on an elevator, take it downstairs for maintenance, uh, repairs, whatever it might need. And uh, by folding the wings and, and other things, you can pack more airplanes <coughs> into space than you could if the wings did not do that. Right. And and so, course, the, so, so the, the, the uh, mechanical shop is in the lower end of the All the maintenance is, is below decks, exactly. Okay. You know, what the, uh, the Navy goes all over the planet, right. and it'd be very extremely difficult to get anything accomplished if the airplane is sitting on the deck in a rolling pitching sea, all that. So that's, yeah, take them downstairs for servicing and maintenance. And okay. Now something that's even more remarkable, we talked about the engine on that biplane being 3D printed. In its infancy, 3D printing was a novelty. You'd make, you'd make interesting little toys and things with them. 3D printing has advanced so far that now, instead of packing a bunch of spare parts on aircraft carriers, they've got an industrial 3D printer that's capable of printing engine parts that, really? sur that will survive uh, the high RPMs and high temperature internal engine parts that spin. Wow. Some, yes, that's and aluminum or steel or well, both. Some pretty exotic uh, alloys, and they can they can three D print the part on the ship, stick it in the engine, and launch the jet. And really, that's when I realized that three D printing was no longer a, a toy. That you yeah. can make certified aircraft. I mean, turbine engine parts will survive the heat and RPMs. It's not a toy anymore. That's just I was I, I toured a couple of uh, ships at one point in time, and the machine shops that they had in those ships were just amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, the lathes and the milling machines and, and all of it, it was kind of like they could make anything that they needed to make. Well, you have to. If but you're now a... the 3D printer thing sounds like it's even a space saver and a... Oh, yeah. Wow. Something I might mention for your visitors that they're hearing a radio in the background. We've got an airband receiver that's tuned to several frequencies. So we're at... Um, Speaker Regional Airport, the former Forbes Air Force Base, we're listening to Forbes Tower and Ground. There's another airport across town that we're, we're listening to also, plus Kansas City Air Route Traffic Control Center. So airliners flying overhead talking to Kansas City Center. We hear all those, and kids find that fascinating. And we tell them, just listen to that. All you're going to hear is, who are you, where are you, what do you want to do, what are you going to do? That's all it all comes down to. You identify yourself, type aircraft, that's pretty much it. And the more you listen to this, the more the picture emerges in your head. And if you're outside, we can hear this, and can see the airplane and see oh. the control tower, it all just comes together. So, Okay. Instead of plumbing music in here, we let you listen to the local air traffic, and, uh, and it makes sense. Kids cool. find that fascinating. Yeah, and, and then down this wall here, you've got your big select, well, part of your selection of, of engines. Variety of both turbine and, uh, and piston engines. Here's another early centrifugal engine. Our rarest engine here is this Westinghouse built version of a very early Whittle jet engine. Frank Whittle was the was the uh, in basically the the British inventor of the turbine engine. Um, he came up with this centrifugal flow design you see here. Excuse me. And uh, it progressed. As it turned out in World War II. This engine was not as advanced as what the Germans had put together. They played around with some of these, but they also came up with an axial flow where the air goes in a straight line from the intake out the exhaust. And that's the kind of engine that powered the twin-engine Messerschmitt 262 jet fighter, the world's first operational jet fighter. 
the British had a jet fighter uh, powered by twin engines also, but they never saw combat with the 262. So this is a good start, but we soon learned that the, the value of the axial flow engine, but anyway, this is a, a 1944, maybe, uh, version engine, one of the earliest jet engines built in America. Yeah, there's a whole line of them here. Oh, you've got one that's all cut down and broke down, so you can see the the so internal workings of the pistons. This is a cutaway of a of a Pratt and Whitney R2800. This engine powered the P47 Thunderbolt, the F4U Corsair, and countless airliners right after the war. Um, it powered a wide variety of military and civilian airplanes, and one of the most reliable engines uh, ever built. You can see how, you can see how complex it is. You can see there are two rows of, of engines, a two-row radial. Yeah. Not a rotary, a radial. Oh, radial, okay. The rotary engine was used in World War I, and that was, it's interesting because the crankshaft on a rotary is bolted to the airplane. The propeller is bolted to the engine. The engine and propeller assembly spin the around engine. the fixed crankshaft. I'll, we walked right by one. I, I can show I'll, you that in a little bit. See, I, I, I and see this. So you can imagine there's an amazing torque effect if you want to turn one way, and then the airplane would just immediately go the other way, and very hard to manage. And I do not envy World War One, World War One pilots who had to fly this questionably maintained airplane, very flammable airplane, with an engine that required all sorts of management. You weren't just you didn't have just a throttle and a mixture. There was a lot to do to keep this engine running while someone's trying to kill you while you're trying to kill them. They just talk about multitasking. Back to this uh, cutaway 2800. This is a twin row radial made about 2,000 horsepower. But like I said earlier, the more the more that piston engines developed, the more complex and less reliable it came. Right next to it is a is a 4360, or, and uh, that's a four row radial engine, and it made 3,000 horsepower. But as an air cooled engine, it was easy to cool the front two rows. The aft two rows were much more difficult. And uh, the engine had all sorts of difficulties, uh, overheating, fires, this and that. And uh, thank goodness jet engines came along when they did because this was not going to be the way forward for really reliable, not the reliable air travel we experience today. When we can fly across the Pacific in a twin-engine jet airplane, that says a lot about reliability. Right. The last piston airplanes to fly the Pacific had four engines, and it was not uncommon to arrive at your destination with... One engine out, or maybe some blade, propeller blades missing. Yeah, that was, thank goodness jet engines came along. But nothing sounds like a radial engine and a round engine at startup. Go to an air show and listen to a Thunderbolt or a Mustang or something start up, and just piston engines just have their own sound. Yeah. This is also a 4360 cutaway to allow you to see the, the internals. Okay. Just a lot more things to go wrong, aren't there? Oh, yeah. That's an interesting looking engine, the way the pistons are set up on that. And you just start oh, oh because, you've got the, because you've got the sleeves, the cylinder sleeves. Right, removed so you can see them. But, okay. But that's, okay. But that's four rows. Here's a twin row engine right, right here. So we just had two more of those, so it's a four row. They call this a corn cob engine. You can see with the yeah. cylinders off, it looks like a corn cob. So. Right. A variety of engines here. There's an 1820 for the kind of power of the B-17. Here's a, um, a Packard Merlin, American-built version of the famous Merlin engine used in the, in the Spitfire. 
Packard Merlins were used in P-40s and, and a variety of other American airplanes. Here's an Allison engine that's used in the Lockheed Lightning. Okay. We're fortunate to have this collection of engines. People love the airplanes that we have. Uh, when folks come to town for, for the drag races and other races at, at the uh, nearby racing park, an awful lot of folks come here just to look at the engines. That's a motorhead's a motorhead. And so. Yeah, no, these are just absolutely fascinating, the way the cylinders are set up. and the, Yeah, it's, it's way cool. Now, here's your basic uh, almost Volkswagen engine. Pretty much straight, yeah. <laughs> little little light combing. Four-cylinder air-cooled. Simple, straightforward. Got a magneto on the back, and these mags are not unlike one you find on a very old tractor, and that's what I'm saying. They're, it's a, they're very, uh, an awful lot of certificate airplanes there are still flying with magnetos, and uh, it's a, a simple, tried-and-true, uh, very tested way, but uh, electronic ignition is here now, and... And it's finding its way, and some of those have been certified, but we've come a very long way. But in aviation, we're just a little careful and a little conservative and want to stick with things that are known to work and did pretty trouble-free. like the distributor, or did they always stay with the Magneto? Well, Magnetos have, have been on piston engines for a very, very long time. Even the, all the, the big radials we saw here have, have right. uh, Magnetos also. But uh, if you wanted to build your own airplane today, uh, you've got a variety of of uh, electronic and a little more modern ignition right. systems available to you. I was just wondering if they'd ever, I mean, automobiles went to the distributor. Well, actually, you have... About 1945 or 50. Actually, inside this Magneto, you'd find what looks like a distributor on a car. Okay. And, uh, and then to make it even more interesting, when airplanes operate at high altitudes, because at, at thinner air, it's the, uh, the ignition system will spark out in this net. They started pressurizing the Magnetos and using high tension to where you're sending high voltage out to a transformer located right by the spark plug that would, uh, okay. or I'm sorry, low tension, low voltage, get to the get to the transformer right by the spark plug. And yeah, it's once again the example of how piston engines were not the way forward for global travel. This is a display about the Olathe Naval Air, the former Olathe Naval Air Station, now known as a New Century Airport in Olathe, just south of Kansas City. It was a big naval training base. After the war, it stayed on as a, as a naval base. And, uh, of course, by Vietnam, an awful lot of uh, naval air stations had been closed. But this, that air base had a long history here in, here in the Midwest and uh, still serves today as both a civilian airfield and home to an uh, Army Reserve uh, CH-47 Chinook unit. In fact, that's where our Chinook came from, and we'll see that soon. Okay. shows uh, the history of the, of the naval air station from beginning to end. You've got some a helmet in here and a flight jacket and some different models. A lot of mem memorabilia. Yeah. There was actually a small museum located on Olathe Naval Air Station, and uh, the building they were in was condemned, and there were some other issues, and they closed the museum. And the the folks running it offered some of the artifacts to us, and that's how we got this display. Some of the art other artifacts went missing, and uh, we occasionally get visitors saying, I donated something to the Olathe Museum, but it's not here. Where is it? Well, we can't answer that because some of their items ended up at a, at a restaurant on display there. Uh -oh. No one knows how that happened, and that's none of our business. But uh. You have a choice. We can either go see the, the second hangar, we can go out and see the EC-121 airborne radar station, and then go over whatever you'd like to do. Well, what you, what, we're here at this end. Let's, Let's go this carry end on. and then, then head on over.
So we're leaving the World War II vintage hangar and going to the Korean War vintage hangar. This hangar was built in 53. By 1953, Forbes Air Force Base was hosting uh, several B-47 units, America's first long-range jet bomber, and uh, the attendant piston-powered tankers. And because our early jet engines weren't reliable, there's a photograph I've seen I'm trying to find a copy of, of the hangar we're about to enter that's absolutely full of tr small trailers, each with a J-47 jet engine on it. Those engines didn't last very long, and they did a lot of engine changes, so hence a hangar full of engines ready for installation. Wow. So we just entered, uh, coming up the, uh, the wheelchair access ramp, and the first airplane we see is this all-black uh, uh, Douglas F3D Sky Knight. And Sky Knights started off, they were used as night fighters in, in uh, Korea, but they even saw service in Vietnam, not as night fighters. They took the weapons out and the radar out and filled it full of all sorts of electronic warfare things. This is one of the first jets equipped for electronic warfare in the U.S. military. And the Marines and Navy both flew them. And when you say electronic warfare, you're referring to sound devices or...? Using electronics to defeat. The, the first use of electronics in wartime was really the Battle of Britain. Uh, the Germans had rolled up Europe. And the next next in line was uh, Europe, was uh, Great Britain. The British had a pretty effective radar system integrated uh, for national defense, a couple different layers. And so that that worked great. But when the Germans figured out, well, this is, they're using radar. How can what can we do to cause trouble with that? And they would that got people thinking about electronic warfare. By World War II, as Americans were bombing. And uh, we knew they were using, the Germans were using radar-guided uh, weapons, uh, guns, to shoot the bombers. They figured out if they dropped strips of aluminum, they called it chaff. It looks like tinsel. If they dumped tinsel out and all this aluminum was cut, or just strips cut to a certain length, they would just blot out the radar screens of the German really? radar operators. And it worked very well. And so even today, when your fighter planes are equipped with uh, uh, some countermeasures to defeat... Uh, to defeat missiles and, and radars. If, and so they even kick out flares to defeat a, a heat-seeking missile, but they also dump chaff or that tinsel to defeat radar. So World War II kicked off a back and forth. If someone develops a, a weapon, someone develops a countermeasure, then you come up with a counter-countermeasure, this and that. So, <laughs> so you go up and you, you have an airplane like the Sky Knight here that's, that's broadcasting a powerful beam to jam the opposing the enemy's radar, and so you, you you want to see a big green blob on their screen or make it not work at all. Of course, they know you've got that neighbor. They spend money in research and come up with something that will put that aside. And so they yeah, it's it just never ends. But but the Skynet was a very effective electronic warfare aircraft in in Vietnam. Now something I tell people, some people think. All jet airplanes have ejection seats. That wasn't the case. Okay. Some airplanes were built without ejection seats. The Sky Knight was one. The way you got out of this airplane in an emergency, if you climb up the stairs and look in the cockpit, I'm going. you'll see a, a square panel between the seats. And in an emergency, okay. the, the white panel between the seats there, yeah. in an emergency, you'd push that out of the way, and there's a slide, just like in the 
kids' amusement park, you go down the slide and, and your body weight will break out a fiberglass panel beneath. And once you fall clear of the airplane, then you pull the, the ripcord on your parachute. So it's more of an escape hatch out behind the seat yes. than what it is in a jet yep. seat. So kids find it amusing the idea there was a slide in this airplane to yeah yeah but well I've heard that uh, hitting the ejection seat's not necessarily a pleasurable deal. Well, and that depends on the airplane. This and that modern seats now are called zero zero. That means sitting in a parked airplane with zero airspeed and zero altitude. That you pull the handle, the rocket in there will fire and take you to a high enough altitude, and then separate you from the seat. And some of them will automatically deploy the parachute to where you will survive coming down. Sadly, just uh, last week, there was a, a Russian bomber that uh, had a mishap. They were, they were doing a pre-flight, and somebody found a way to launch all three seats, and they weren't zero-zero seats, and the seats carried the, the crew up a certain height and let them fall to earth and killed all three. So. Wow. Seats vary. It's, uh, That's still got to be quite the impact just going up uh, oh, it is. with the rocket power um, or whatever. And even with the most modern seats, some people still experience some, anything from discomfort to injured spines, you know, discs, this and that. In the old days, the early seats, they would, the advice on the flight line was, if you're going to eject, get in a position you want to be in for the rest of your life. And uh, yeah. yeah. But seats have come an extremely long way, and uh, the modern seats today are remarkable. I would imagine just in the ejection process, if you're doing 600 or 500 miles an hour, just the wind hitting you and pushing you back over would exactly. have to be a phenomenal trauma to the body. And so in the case of the, uh, the B-58 Hustler, a big uh, Delta Wing bomber, had a crew of three, and that airplane is capable of going over twice the speed of sound. And so they, you couldn't expose somebody to that kind of wind blast, so it had a capsule that would actually enclose you in your seat go out and then it would separate you oh. from the capsule and and pop the chute and all that so and the F111 uh sold it they didn't have ejection seats there was a capsule the whole cockpit blew away from the airplane and deployed a parachute oh that would be yeah huh incredibly complex and and heavy and all that but it worked well so well, I got another question have you ever been through the, the sound barrier no, not me. Not on the KC-135. I've, I've, I've seen these pictures of planes going through the sound barrier, and they show like a, a cloud, that a sound cloud or something. I don't really when understand you're seeing, When you're seeing that, that it, it's, that's more a, a, an atmospheric effect, and you don't have to be going supersonic, although as you approach that, it's a little more prevalent. That's a function of the uh, speed of the airplane and the humidity in the air. Okay. The condensation as the... The, the, the pressure reduces as the air goes over the top of the wing, and that can condense the, the air out occasionally. So that will lead to a lot of the, the vapors that you see They're around cool an airplane. Oh, they are. Them. They are. But I just, I, I, I never really thought of the sound barrier being a, a visible thing, you know? And, we have and a, it doesn't happen so much anymore, but I know when I was a kid, you didn't know Boom, overhead, all, all yeah, the yeah, that's time. exactly. And, and now the engineers are working on coming up with a aircraft shapes that will, that will minimize or eliminate the boom. And the state of Kansas just, just announced they're opening a corridor that pretty much parallels the southern border of the state where uh, uh, folks can operate. It'll be a, a sonic corridor where you can oh, test really? machines like that. And so that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. So Now, some, along those lines, we've got an F-105 Thunder Chief, and uh, 
The near, the, our next door neighbor, the Museum of the Kansas National Guard, also has an F-105. And at the dedication of that jet, um, a retired Kansas Army National Guard general who flew F-105s uh, when he was a lieutenant described how flying the F-105, you knew you were getting close to speed and without even looking at your Mach meter or your airspeed indicator, he said, as you approach the speed of sound, a little look like a rooster tail of vapor would form about 45 degrees up on the windshield, and the faster you went, the more it worked its way back. And he said, just as that little rooster tail went out of sight, uh, uh, when you're looking straight ahead, uh -huh. we just got out of sight, that's when you went sonic. Just an interesting wow. interesting coincidence, but nothing to be able to read about in the book. You have to talk to someone who did it. And yeah. The fun part yeah, is speaking well, that's, veterans that's, that come to this museum. Kind of and I was asking this. It, it exactly. Just, those pictures have just always amazed me. Now, this is a do I want to say a cute little helicopter? I think that's fair to say, but but the actual story behind it is it's a Frankenhiller. This is a Hiller OH-23 um, Raven. They were they uh, ended their days in, in the Army as a training helicopter, but early on they were used for medevac, just like in MASH. Oh, the, the helicopter you see in the MASH series is the Bell 47. This looks so much like that with the bubble cockpit, the piston engine right behind it, and uh, carrying stretches on either side. I say it's a Frankenhiller because uh, this came to us from a collector who had a bunch of, uh, he'd been rounding up Hiller parts for quite some time and flew several of them. And this hel this helicopter is a composite of various ABCD models of the OH-23. So um, That had to have been quite the ride. You're injured and you get to sit in a little stretcher on the outside. Oh, yeah. That, chopper. And I love to fly, but I don't like heights, so I probably wouldn't enjoy riding that stretcher. <laughs> There's an interesting variation of this, once again, at our neighbors, the Museum of the Kansas National Guard. They have a four-seat hiller, a little larger, little larger bubble, and uh, presumably the engine delivered a bit more horsepower for that. Something I found fascinating, I, I know very little about helicopters, uh, but if you look at this, you see the, 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 the main rotor, two-blade main rotor, and then it's got 90 degrees from that, at shorter booms with an airfoil on the end. That airfoil is used to that's a control that helps alter the, the disc of the, when, when, this, when the rotor blades are spinning, you control the helicopter by tipping the disc in the direction right. you want to go. And if you want to go up or down, then you, you load the blades together to go up and down. Well, the way you influence the, the rotor disc on this is with these two little airfoils on these booms. And if we had a ladder for you to get in touch, you'd see that those airfoils are covered with fabric. Okay. So. Huh. Never thought I, I'd never seen fabric-covered surfaces on a helicopter before, and then you got a pretty cool old ambulance back there. Got too. a couple got military vehicles here. Wagon. When this museum began in the mid '70s, although we were an aviation museum, we were accepting anything painted OD. And <laughs> got a couple got military vehicles here. Wagon. When this museum began in the mid '70s, although we were an aviation museum, we were accepting anything painted OD and <laughs> vehicles and. All sorts of things. We even have a, I think, a fitting a display about the the uh, Los Angeles class attack submarine USS Topeka. So, not a combat aircraft, but we make we make some allowances here and there. Right. Before we go much further, I'll show you something out here. Okay. This is the latest addition to our collection. We're just outside our South Hangar, where we're looking at a Boeing CH-47D Chinook. Now. It needs some love, it needs some attention. This helicopter was brand new in 1967 and went straight from the, the factory in Pennsylvania to Vietnam. 
where it was part of the very first, it was one of the very early Chinooks. It's a C model, they're raising bees, but it, it went to Vietnam as a, with the unit that pioneered Chinook operations in Vietnam, the 101st Airborne. Now the Chinooks, the, the big helicopter you see with the two with the two rotors. One looks on the looks front, like a banana, and yeah, two big main rotors. Most helicopters have a main rotor and a smaller tail rotor. And again, I've I've learned from people who know more about helicopters than me. Uh, the Chinook looks looks kind of big and ungainly, and uh, you wouldn't think much of it. Well, I've been stunned to learn it's the fastest helicopter in the Army inventory. It's faster than an Apache gunship. Really, and. So its speed is, makes it admirable, but one reason it's so popular in Afghanistan is that this helicopter loves high altitudes. The big key is, the, is its layout with these two big main rotors. 100% of the power your two engines make is delivered to those two main rotors. On a conventional helicopter, about 75 or 80% of your power goes to spin the main rotor, but you've got to save 15 to 25% of the power to run that tail rotor, and it's not producing any lift. It's not doing any work. It's just preventing the helicopter from spinning under the main one. So with two big main rotors like this, turning in opposite directions, we don't have that torque to worry about, and 100% of the engine power is devoted to lift. So Wow. So they've got a, a massive payload that they can pick up. Yeah, the Chinook will carry an awful lot. And if you go look at it, you'll see it's got a ramp like the, CH, like the uh, CH-53 we looked at. This particular helicopter is pretty interesting. It served in, in Vietnam, came back. Got upgraded to a D model, went on to serve in Iraq and then Afghanistan. It came to us from an Army Reserve unit over in Olathe who had been taking it to Afghanistan and this and that. Well, they were considering upgrading it yet again when they discovered some structural issues that took it out of service. They called and said, would you like a Chinook? And I said, yes, please. And they said, well, come and get it. So well, it's not going to be that simple. And it proved to not be that simple. But before we went to get it one day, a woman showed up here on crutches with a service dog. And she was touring, and later that day I heard from the fellow who gave her a tour, who's a veteran himself, he said, this woman came in today, and she told me more about helicopters than I ever knew. And, and then he had mentioned her, we're going to get a Chinook, and her eyes lit up. And she came back a couple days later with the book and said, what's the number of your Chinooks? We told her it's uh, 8524346. She opens up her book and says, that's my old helicopter. Turns out, fascinating story. Uh, she had she had been working in IT, making a great a great living. And then when the New York City was attacked, that had irritated her, and she joined the military. Her father had been a Marine door gunner on helicopters, and so she wanted to do something about it, and she wanted it in the family business. So wow. she joins the army. Rare for a woman to be a maintainer, crew chief, flight engineer, but she did all that. She starts off maintaining Chinooks, got selected for a crew chief position, went to Iraq on this very helicopter, 346, that was her helicopter. She's got photos and all that. It's amazing. She let, last saw it in Kuwait when they came back to the States. And then she went to Afghanistan on a subsequent trip there. She was injured several times. One time uh, they got into a firefight with the Taliban. The helicopter got away, but it had a hard landing, and that ended her military career. She's medically retired from the Army. And uh, so long story how she ends up in Topeka, Kansas, of all places. But what are the odds? of her running across her old helicopter. Well, guess who's in charge of restoring this helicopter now? She is. Awesome. Nobody knows it better than I. I worked on Boeing's for 30 years, but they didn't have rotary wings, and uh, so it's great. And so she's working on She's tracking the history of this helicopter. She had the privilege last week of giving a tour to two Vietnam veterans who had been on the very first Chinooks to go to Vietnam. Wow. And just fascinating just to 
watch them tell each other the stories and learn about it, the business and that. So anyway, right now it's just a fuselage. We've got it anchored to the ground out here so the Kansas wind doesn't blow it away or anything. A company in St. Louis said that uh, overhauls blades for Boeing is offered to uh, overhaul our blades. If we, well, All we have to do is deliver them. They'll do it for free. They want, they feel an obligation to support the history of these. So many Chinooks, like this one, when they reach into life, are being sent to the East Coast and being scrapped, cut up. Oh, really? So many of these. We feel fortunate to have got this one, let alone with the story it carries. So, anyway, more work to do on it, neat. but it's a... We've got a nice collection of cargo helicopters here, and uh, that's just the latest one. So we were talking about uh, the MiG-15s and the, the Cougar, the Panther next door, flying in uh, Korea. The American fighter most people think of in uh, the Korean War is the F-86 Sabre. What we have here is a later model version of that, the F-86H. And... Uh, it was, it was pretty much the end of the, well, not quite the very last F-86 F built. Later on, they put a big radar on the nose and, and loaded it up with, uh, with unguided missiles because the Russians were coming, and right. so we'd find Soviet bombers over Wyoming, and we'd have all these uh, F-86s of missiles ready to shoot them down. But the F-86H was the last real dogfighter of the Sabre series, and that's what we have here. And this airplane ended, like the painting you see displaying how it's going to be marked, this very airplane flew with the Massachusetts Air Guard out of Boston. And you can see a colorful time back in the 50s. You see the shamrock on the tail and, the, right. and on the nose and the green markings. And, and uh, that's how this airplane will end up being finished to look as it did back in the 50s in, in Massachusetts. But you look at the nose and you see, finally we learned that no more machine guns like they had in, in F-86s in Korea. This had a, pair of, had a quartet of 20-millimeter cannons bit more like it for uh they're coming for, right out the side of the fuselage like uh like wind scoops on the side of a car exactly so all the pilot has to do is just point the airplane and hit and he's he's aiming the guns by by flying the airplane oh, you line the up the target and shoot this little black fairing on the nose here is a is a small but effective targeting radar so oh. you get in close and that that's uh integrated with the gun sight to where you can just line up and when when it when it's time that tells you and you pull the trigger and mm. blow it out of the sky so huh. this is an interesting little airplane we you, you talked earlier about how how pilots were trained before they came here to fly their bombers this is a Volte BT-13 it was called the Volte Vibrator and someone learning to fly in World War II would start out on a very small basic airplane some even a Piper Cub little little uh, low-powered airplane just to learn the basics right. Then he'd graduate to something like this. Now we've got a little more powerful engine and uh, a few more controls to worry about. And uh, from this, you would go to the, to the Harvard or the T-6. At that point, they got an airplane with a retractable gear, a controllable propeller, and the Harvard or the Texan weighed about as much as the fighter did, but with a lot less horsepower. So it gave you the feel of the airplane. Your next, your next stop would be the fighter you're going to fly with a more powerful engine, now you're going to integrate gunnery skills and this and that. Uh, bomber crews would go off to learn learn how to handle a multi-engine airplane and then navigate and do all the other work. But the BT-13 is pretty straightforward, as you can see. We've replaced some of the side panels with plexiglass so people can see the, the welded seal tubing structure or the other systems of the airplane. That's really, it's, it's really a neat way to display that, you know, with the plexiglass on it, you can see the internal workings of just about everything. 
It's pretty cool. Pretty easy to maintain too because it, you can see the plexiglass is attached with the same fasteners that the side panels would have been. So these airplanes are flying constantly and they had to be inspected every 100 flying hours and that happened very quickly at a training base. So they, they designed this with a mechanic in mind with panels that popped off so you can easily get to what you need to do to inspect, so remove, this replace. Done, so this was done originally? like. Oh yeah, that's... Oh really? Okay. Yep. I thought this was something you guys did. No, not at all. This for, is the, for display. And the, the uh, T6 or the Harvard is the same way. Large panels on the side that come off and easily exposing things. Um, I'm a licensed civilian mechanic. I had the pleasure of inspecting that Harvard back in the 80s when, when the museum was still flying airplanes. And I was just marveled at, at that airplane was really designed with a mechanic in mind. Cool. Some airplanes after that, and especially in the jet age, we got away from that. And the F-4 Phantom was so labor-intensive that the Air Force said when they released the, the uh, request for the F-15, they said it's got to have require a lot less maintenance than the Phantom did. And the F-15, if you talk to somebody who worked on them, we've got a guy here who was an F-15 crew chief, said just a, p a pleasure compared to the Phantom, the F-111, others, so... I can oh, see that. Always nice and make it easy on the on the maintainer because that means we'll get the airplane back in the air more quickly than than uh, you would another one. So right. That's what the VT13 did. And I'll point it. You'll see here is still fabric on the surfaces. Uh huh. And this is cool. The searchlight. <laughs> it's used by a local business here in town for a lot. They you could rent a searchlight just like at a. Back in the old Hollywood days, the premier right. didn't have searchlights waving around. Then that's yeah, we what we used to have a car dealership that had one, and you could see that the car dealership is 60 miles by road away from from where we're at. But when they would run that in the summertime, you could see that searchlight 60 oh, yeah. miles away, uh, flashing out across the sky. You'd be out there going, "What in the world's go?" Oh, I guess Webster Chevrolet's having a having a <laughs> sale. Well, yeah. these were effective, and uh, I mean, they're novelty now, but these were effective. And then when you coupled that with a radar, early on it was just optical. Right. During the Battle of Britain, or during the Blitz, uh, the bombing of London, the Brits had uh, searchlights, but they were manually operated, and you could easily get away from that. British bombers bombing Germany at night for a while could do a corkscrew maneuver, just dive and turn, and you'd get out of a, get out of a searchlight. Well, then they coupled searchlights with radar, and there was oh. no escaping, and... So that made it tough and easier for the gun crews on the ground to get you or fi night fighters in the air. And then, uh, and then when the German night fighters had their own, own radar on board and four cannons, it was a you know, hard time to be a bomber pilot over Germany at night. I'll bet. And then we got a sky crane. This is a remarkable helicopter. It looks like a giant insect or something like that. And again, it's kind of like a praying mantis in a way. It is. And... Remarkably, they, they were only in the Army for a short time, but the Sikorsky sold the type certificate, the, the production rights, to Ericsson Air Crane up in the Northwest. And they'll, if you called them today and said, I'd build me a Sky Crane, they would. They, they build these, they fly them all over the world. Uh, there was a, a Sky Crane team here last summer that was lifting some uh, air conditioning for a new warehouse. And they came by and looked at it, and they, it was fun talking to them about comparing and contrasting their new build crane to our, uh, when was this built, 60-something. And uh, a lot of things are the same, but a lot of things have been improved. This is just a remarkable helicopter. What we see here what, is... What's the lifting capacity on this? I'm going to have to look at the Go sign to be accurate about it. I Again, it's 42 I airplanes. I haven't memorized everything, but the uh, max grows 42,000. That's a lot of weight. This was amazing to see at air shows for a couple reasons. Uh, 
I think it still holds the record today. The time to climb, I forget to what altitude, nothing could outclimb a, a sky crane. At air shows, it was popular to have, have one of these sitting on the ground with the rotor turning and an F4 Phantom on the runway. And we're going to have a countdown and see if you can go to 20,000 feet the fastest or whatever. And they three, two, one, go. And uh, the Phantom is just releasing brakes and starting down the runway, and this thing is almost <laughs> invisible. Nothing could outclimb a sky crane. Wow. It's just amazing. The other thing they did with these at air shows, throughout the day, you'd say, there's an illegally parked car, please move your car. They'd describe it. Well, at the end of the air show, it was all set up. At the end of the day, they'd, they'd say, well, we told you to move your car, but you didn't, so we're going to move it for you. And here comes a sky crane <laughs> with like a 64 Caddy slung underneath it. And they'd go out to, go out to the infield in front of all the folks and release it from like a thousand feet or five hundred feet. <laughs> Amazing to see how, how many times a Cadillac dropped from that height would wow. bounce. It was remarkable to see. It would be kind of fun to go see the car after it hit. Well, too. yeah, there's not much left. But the sky current is amazing, and uh, the crews that flew them loved them. There's this bubble on the back of the helicopter, you see, right. with a seat facing aft. And this helicopter can be controlled, can be flown from that seat. Really? Yes, and the idea being that while you're, while you're hovering, picking up your load or whatever, you hand over control to the pilot in the rear-facing seat, and he's flying the helicopter. But I, I've never flown one of these, but it's got to be interesting if you're used to looking that way and flying. Yeah. Now we're backwards, so right is left, left is right, but I'm sure very quickly you get used to that. You see these four attach points out here. Right. That's for a, 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 a cargo pod. It had this big box with a couple windows in it that you could fill with stuff. You could fill it with people or stuff. Uh, sometimes they used them for a small field hospital, uh, just a cargo pod, a headquarters, whatever, whatever you wanted to put inside it. And the joke was that they, these guys would haul a bunch of soldiers occasionally at summer camp training. And they said, you keep an eye on that guy in the rear seat there. And he'd hold up a button. He says, if you guys misbehave, he can just push that button and drop the box. So don't, don't annoy him. And, some of the guys believe that, but and here's the, the this big yellow hook in the center of the oh, helicopter is the the reason for existence. That That's wow. yeah. Like I said, Ericsson still builds these. They they operate around the world. They're exceptional at firefighting, and so when it's firefighting season in Australia, it's winter up here. Right. As the seasons change, now the firefighting season comes up here, so those copters are busy year round. And yeah, we used to have uh, Hawkins and Powers. It, yeah, oh, yeah. It, it, it was at our hometown in Wyoming. Wow. Great yeah, Grable, uh, yeah. Yeah, Grable, yeah. yeah. An yeah. amazing question. seven miles south. In oh. fact, I just got through putting flooring in their museum, and, and I haven't done a podcast with them yet. Just a small museum, but Hawkins and Powers had two of these things that were flying at one point in time. But uh, unfortunately, they amazing... They're not around anymore. Well, they had an amazing array of World War II airplanes, as you well, well they know. they still do. When yeah. I was a kid, I'd read about Hawkins and Powers and issues of air progress. I didn't know much about geography, but I knew Grable was where you could see a lot of World War II airplanes. You'll have to come up and visit I, us. Yeah. Yeah. They've got, they've got a small museum where they got a B-17 and, you know, I mean, some other stuff sitting out there. The Canadian, or the, the airplanes with the, uh, with the two tail, with the tail fin that comes, comes back with the fuselage and then has the uh, probably C one nineteen probably and that's what, whatever it was that was in the movie uh, Phoenix Flight of the Phoenix Flight of the Phoenix yeah that's yeah, it the they C-119. took that they took that that airplane on over to Africa to to film that yeah, yeah. Well, that was a C eighty two they look alike though but and then they've got 
Yeah, they've, they've got several planes on display there, I think five or six. But the graveyard is still in the back. They haven't got everything scrapped, and our, our county commissioners are getting a little bit irritated that those planes aren't leaving the back of the airfield, and I kind of like to see them there. they got a bunch of C-130s back there. And Historic like airplanes. Yeah, yeah. Now, a lot of people look at, at this airplane. It's, it's a, a, a B, it's, in the Syrian world, it's a, a twin bonanza. It's, they were kind of common at airfields. Just a big green twin engine uh, airplane with, with uh, Lycoming engines. Not much to look at. It doesn't carry bombs, doesn't carry rockets, no missiles, nothing like that. But the, this airplane is fascinating to me because in Vietnam, uh, this would go up and lo it would locate radio transmitters, okay. and, and not people speaking on them, but Morse code. And a couple of fellows who were radio operators on this airplane, and that was the most important job. The, the guy in the back, the enlisted man in the back, listening to, listening to the radio, was, had exceptionally high security clearances, this and that. The pilots in front were basically there just to be his drivers, and they weren't read in on all the programs he was. So I talking with one of the guys who comes up here about once, every, once a year, and they'd go up, and he describes how they'd fly these strange patterns, and you had to get multiple hits on the same transmitter to confirm. And then once you had that and you flew back, you would relay that information for either an airstrike or an artillery strike or something like that, because wherever the radio is, that's where the troops are. Right. And that led to a discussion, well, so if they're using Morse code, I didn't know, but uh, apparently, even if you're a North Vietnamese radio operator, you used Morse code. You weren't transmitting in Vietnamese, or I mean... Really? Yeah, that's yeah, that's all the ham operators in your and your audience will so, know so that and think it's silly. Everything's but in English, or is it Morse I mean, code? That's yeah. So that's I thought that that was interesting. But anyway, so this yeah. airplane is flying around, no weapons, but out of the wingtips, the extended wingtips, you see these vertical black poles right. look like. And the one thing we had to remove because of our airplanes are so closely packed. There was a long wire antenna running from the wingtip to the tail out to both okay. wingtips. We had to take those down to make everything fit. So it was a great big antenna then. So these guys are flying around, not much above. Well, I mean, they kind of occasionally come back with bullet holes in the airplane. They're flying around, listening for transmitters, marking on the map of where that is, and go to take the information back. So they're out. This is another example of electronic warfare to help save American lives and... Uh, Make the bad guys wish they hadn't uh, gotten on the radio. And uh, there's a variation of this. I mean, we still have airplanes equipped to go up and listen for the bad guys and locate them and then send people to see them. And, but this is one of the earliest versions of that and a fascinating airplane. And they just bought these off the, off the, right out of the factory. So it's got a turquoise interior. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, it's, it's painted OD. This is, this is the way the airplane went to war in Vietnam. It's all it's all camouflage outside, but inside you'll find some turquoise original. Yeah, just like a civilian plane. Yep, they were in a hurry to do that, and this is the only one currently, the only one of its type currently available uh, on display at a museum. There had been one at a Army Security Agency museum on the East Coast, and it was a very small museum, and they needed the space for a parking lot, so it's been put away somewhere. So, huh? So this is the only one on display. Yep. Wow. Fascinating machine. Kilroy is here. This museum flew airplanes from the from the time the museum started in '76 until the mid '90s, when the cost of operations and maintenance and insurance got out of hand. But during that time, Kilroy was our flagship airplane, and the the face mask you see me wearing is 
It's got Kilroy on the front too. Okay. Uh, remarkable airplane, the C-47, uh, traces back to the DC-3, even the two and one. This is the first airplane that was that an airline could operate and actually make money on without without a, an airmail subsidy. But by the time World War II comes along, it was the the preeminent cargo hauler. And this is the airplane most people know as as the, the airplane used to haul all the paratroops on D-Day, okay. and that explains the black and white stripes on the on the airplane. This particular airplane didn't see a combat service. It it's got you see the little bubble on top. That's right. that Astrodome. There's another one on the back, and you'll see a few places, round panels up there where they had multiple ones. This was a navigator trainer in uh, late World War II and, and carried on that role for a while after the war. And then when it left Air Force service, it got put to work like a lot of them. We've got a vertical fin from a sister ship. It was used for, for spraying for some sort of in, insects along the way. But anyway, our museum got it and uh, turned into Kilroy, and it was a staple at air shows for the longest time. And, Till we stopped flying operations in the mid '90s, but still a remarkable airplane. And uh, in its travels around air shows, it, it acquired a few very interesting autographs upstairs in the cockpit. Uh, General Robin Olds, uh, who was an ace in both Vietnam and World War II, his autograph is up there. And, wow! Uh, something we're rather proud of, but quite and, the machine. And you got a collection of uh, bombs. Yeah, and uh, the two biggest ones here came to us from the Eisenhower Museum. They recently, two years ago, began a uh, major renovation and a complete refocus. They they found themselves with a bunch of things at their museum that had nothing to do with uh, Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, right. know, these massive bombs, and you know, Ike wasn't a bombardier and, and this and that, so, so they brought let us have those, and we're happy to have them. A bit more appropriate here than someplace else. Now This, this is your breakdown of the jet engine. <clears throat> Now, this, this is, is really cool because you've got this strung out over 35 feet. This is each a individual part broke out. A Pratt and Whitney J57 turbojet engine, and it's unique for a lot of reasons. This spent decades at Chanute Air Force Base in Illinois, training generations of uh, Air Force jet engine mechanics. And when they closed Chanute, uh, they founded a small museum there. And that museum uh, closed, I think, about five years ago. And when they closed, they had a, quite a collection of aircraft and engines and other artifacts, and we felt fortunate to get this. And it's interesting to, to teach both kids and adults because a turbojet, all the air that gets sucked in the inlet goes, down, goes through the compressor section, we squirt fuel in it, light it, and it all goes out the back and spins these turbines that spin the compressor at the front, and you know, the, the process continues. Nowadays, the core engine of a jet engine burns a little bit of the fuel, but to make thrust, but its real reason is to spin the fan in front, and 80% of the thrust of a modern jet engine just comes from accelerating air around the core engine and out the back. Oh, really? And that's why they're quieter and burn less fuel and all that. So, But in the early 50s, this was this was a leading edge of technology. This engine served on a bunch of fighters and bombers and tankers and airliners. In the case of a fighter, at the end of the engine, we'd add an afterburner, which... All we're doing is dumping raw fuel into the the jet exhaust, the the fire in the back, and getting an extra push. It it uh, doesn't do much for your gas mileage, but uh, that's why you had tankers around to keep feeding the fighters. But a rather versatile engine. This is just amazing. 
I've never seen one uh, one broke out like this. I mean, you know, you see cross-section cuts, but I've never seen one strung out. Uh, one thing we walked by in our north hangar was uh, we've got a quarter-scale replica of this engine, and, and you can push a button and, and watch it rotate, and, and that's cutaways to explain how the various stages work. Next to this is an external mock-up of this engine that was used for training mechanics on how to remove and replace a starter, a generator, okay. other external accessories. Our long-term plan for, for display is to get that quarter-scale J57 combined with this and uh, a little more logical display, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> you got an old military Jeep. Oh, yeah. That's... Got to sort out a cooling problem and hopefully have it ready to go this spring for for the air show coming up in June. Now, is this one you're restoring, or is this one to show how the fuselages are all put this, together? And We talked about composite airplanes today. They're made of resin and, and all sorts of advanced materials. But in World War II, this is a, no better example of a composite airplane because what we see, this is a, a Cessna UC-78 Bobcat. Everybody called it a bamboo bomber. There was no bamboo used in it, but... People are prone to exaggeration a bit. And uh, so what you see here, the basic fuselage is welded steel tubing painted in zinc chromate primer. But it gets its shape from a lot of wood. Wood was a non-strategic material. We needed lots of multi-engine trainers to teach guys how to get... Guys then, because you know, now it's, we have female uh, combat crew members too, but back then we needed something to teach guys how to fly a multi-engine airplane. But we needed lots of them and needed to build them fast and had to be cheap. So the steel was kind of critical, but that's why the use of wood, that was easy, and uh, right, people were familiar with using them. So the, the Bobcats has wood and steel and all covered in fabric. Again, a lightweight covering, easy to repair, easy to take care of. And for people above a certain age who remember Sky King, then uh, the first airplane used, well, it began as a radio show, then a TV show. Okay. And uh, the first airplane used in a TV show was, was a, a Bobcat. Now, old as I am, I can only remember when Sky King and, and his niece Penny flew a Cessna 310. But, I uh, don't even remember so. Sky King. How's that for... But anyway, that's... <laughs> for memory. There are a couple of parts from our Chinook. These are the rotor hubs. And like I explained, we're going to have the... We haven't put them on yet because we have to get the blades uh, rehabbed first and all that. But So these will be going on the airplane soon, going on the copter soon. Here's a DC-9 emergency procedures trainer that came to us from the Chanute Museum also. And uh, we need to get, we're making plans to relocate this closer to power because we thought with this might be operational and we looked underneath and saw someone had used an axe on all the wire bundles. Oh. They'll never, never be able to do that. But what we want to do is light the cabin and uh, let kids get in and, and play. The original this use. Is, this is a, what we're looking at here is just a, a cutaway of like the cockpit of an airplane. A DC 9, Douglas DC 9. Training. And exactly, yeah. emergency procedures. So, what you see, the, the trainee of the pilot being evaluated would sit in the left seat, the pilot and command seat. The evaluator would sit in the right seat, and there's a telephone handset that's difficult to see. And the evaluator in the right seat would talk to the operator standing back here at the control panel. Okay. And at this control panel, you can induce all sorts of failures. And so what we're doing is what is evaluating the pilot to see if he knows. There are certain procedures you have to memorize because there isn't time to get out. What do I do with an engine fire? No time to get out of the book. And, mm -hmm. and so, so we'd see if he remembers the bold face. And then once he's handled the immediate emergency, does he go to the right 
checklist in the emergency section and continue to, to handle the emergency. So whether it's an engine out, an engine fire, landing gear won't, won't extend, whatever it is, you would evaluate it. Nowadays, there's a, everybody uses simulators that are, that are uh, full motion, three axis. Right. Like flying a real airplane. And uh, yeah, it's not all this electromechanical stuff that we see here, but this will still be fun for kids to get in. And oh, yeah. My five year old granddaughter loves this. It's kid tested and kid proven. So <laughs> this is a neat machine, the, the Lockheed T 33. Uh, America's first practical jet fighter was the, the Lockheed F 80, the straight winged airplane that you see here. Uh, it never went into, they took a few over to Italy just to buck up bomber crew morale, but they never, F-80s never encountered uh, German jets in combat. Right after the war, uh, and they made a million of these, so right after the war, the Air Force realized we needed a jet trainer. So they took a bunch of F-80s, and they cut the front nose off, put in a plug, added the second seat, okay. and then some T-33s were built as T-33s, but some were converted from F-80s. And uh, so there's just a million of these things around. And uh, they lasted forever and ever. I joined the Air National Guard in 84, and the Washington, D.C. Air Guard were still flying some, some T-33s. They went away shortly after that. This particular airplane served up in Montana, I believe. And then you see it's obviously been vandalized, and we've rehabbed as best we could, uh, short of painting the airplane. That may be next. Uh, this airplane, like so many like it, found its way to a city park. And everybody oh. thought, well, this would be a veteran's memorial, this and that. Well, in almost every city park one of these ever went to, it only took two months for the airplane to be heavily vandalized. We had one in a, a park here in Topeka. And the first thing goes, they, they vandals would break the, the canopy. The plexiglass all goes away. And then they start breaking things inside the cockpit and bashing other things. You can look around this airplane and see where people use hammers and axes and right. whatever else, punch holes in the side of it. So we patched that and used, used uh, body putty also to fill things in. But Vandals did quite a job in this airplane, but we brought it, got it from a park in South Dakota, I think it was, brought it here, assembled it, and done some body work. And we've recently, a couple of our volunteers have gotten after polishing it. They stopped when the extraordinary cold came along. We'll oh. resume that here shortly, but... Uh, and there's a lot of T-33 still flying in private hands. It's, an ex it's a very simple, straightforward, easy to maintain, easy to fly jet that people dearly love. And so you, you can still find many of these flying at air shows today. Wow. Yeah, you can, the back end's polished up pretty nice. Yeah, that's, it, it looks pretty That's how far end. they got before. I mean, <laughs> anybody listening this probably has a story to tell from the, the winter this year, the extraordinary cold snap. And it is what... Between the pandemic and the cold snap, it's been a delightful year. You know, the thing, the, the thing that's funny about that is being in Wyoming, we're accustomed to the cold weather. And I know somebody in, in Dallas, Texas, and I was talking to them, and they were, they were 10 degrees colder than us. Yes, that's... <laughs> Not good. Now, you saw that black jet in our north hangar. It was a MiG-15. The okay. Soviets continued to improve airplanes as, just as we did, getting ready for the next war. This is a MiG-17, although this is a Polish-built example. And Soviet aircraft were built in all countries in the, in the, behind the Iron Curtain of the uh, Warsaw Pact countries. And among all those, the Polish-built airplanes were always seen as a Cadillac or the nicest version. They built some extraordinary airplanes before World War II. Great workmanship, this and that. And so Polish 
uh, MIGs were seen as the best of the lot. Really? And we've, thanks to the internet, we found pictures of our, our jet in Polish service back when we've communicated with some folks in Poland who are working on researching the jet's history and, and this and that. And uh, we intend to, this airplane sat outside for a long time here, and that's why it looks so faded and all that. We're looking to, re, to uh, repaint it here soon. This airplane in the corner is an S2. Uh, this, uh, this design was used for a variety of things. Uh, our version is an anti-submarine aircraft. When it was flying, it would have, uh, would have carried uh, torpedoes, sauna buoys, things like that. They made a version just like a pickup truck. This, the cabin was empty. It was called the COD, the Carrier Onboard Delivery. Okay. This is the airplane to bring you bring your mail, uh, uh, aircraft parts, you know, high-priority cargo from offshore or take pe transport people and stuff. Uh, they needed to go. Once again, you see how the wings fold to right. help the airplane fit down below decks. And these wings fold all the way over the top. Yes. To where it's got the wings sitting on top of the fuselage. Exactly. And they're all hydraulically actuated in most cases. A few airplanes have uh, manually, you have crew members that, or ground oh. crew that fold them, but something like this, it's all hydraulic. And you'll see, you'll see a video of one of these coming aboard. As soon as they land and the cable clears, they start folding the wings as they're taxing to parking so they get it on the okay. elevator and get it downstairs. That's a good sized plane. Bit cozy on the inside, but it was great for what it was designed to do. And the last version of it was called uh, the Stoof with a Roof. Stoof was a part of the, the naval designation for the airplane. But they put this big aerodynamically shaped radome on top. Okay. It, had a, it got some extra vertical fins because the radome blanked out airflow over the tail. But it was a, an airborne uh, radar station. Okay. Kind of like the EC-121 we'll see in a little bit outside. But this airplane served a variety of uh, purposes. Its replacement today looks very much like this, only it's got a pair of turboprop engines. The E-2 Hawkeye is, uh, is the modern version, and a six-bladed composite prop, but you can, you can see a resemblance when, you, when they're parked next to one another. These are very popular. After, the, after uh, naval service, a lot of these got converted to fire bombers. Oh, okay. uh, you see them flying in California. California even put turbo props on them to get something a bit more reliable than the, the radial engine. This is a jet we're looking at here. This big orange and say big. It's not big compared to some other jets. White and orange uh, Navy two-seat trainer called the TA-4J Skyhawk. It's a two-seat version of the original A-4 Skyhawk that was a remarkable airplane. As small as it is, it carried an amazing load. Uh, had a variety of nicknames um, from the scooter, Heinemann's hot rod after Ed Heinemann, the genius designer who designed this among many other airplanes. But the orange and white paint tells you immediately this is used for uh, flight training in the Navy. They still paint their trainers orange and white like this. And uh, quite an airplane. This, this museum is just awesome. I mean, you guys have so many cool airplanes. and There's some A4s used as adversaries in the original Top Gun movie. The, the remake coming out soon probably won't feature any A4s, but this is using the original. Wow. Speaking of Top Gun, here's an F-14. Okay. And it came from the... the Actually, that's <coughs> a lot bigger than what I thought that it would have been. I've had the pleasure of getting on the back and sweeping it a couple times, and it's like sweeping a tennis court. It's just, just <laughs> immense. It, it's really big. And you mentioned before about folding wings. Right. The, the wings sweep back. The faster you go, the more the wings sweep. But they will sweep even more. Than, they'll sweat more now 
than they would in flight because that was to help make even more room below deck. So you right. could suck up the wings just a bit tighter when you're taking the, the airplane below decks. But, and once again, it's neat. Some, some F-14 veterans who have been along to visit this, a gentleman visited us about a year ago, and he'll be here soon. Uh, he was a maintainer on this very jet. Isn't and, that? Uh, do you find that totally amazing that I'd, they made that they made thousands of these things, and then you find the guy that actually maintained yeah, this particular plane? It's pretty neat. Or or was on that particular helicopter? Exactly. I mean, it's just, just, it's it, just fascinating. <laughs> it's a small world, they say, and and yeah, it is that. You know, you can drive. I I don't know what planes they have. Have you been down to Tucson and seen the graveyards? I've not, oh. I've not visited that, but I've, yeah, very I've familiar with it. That, I mean, there's just miles and miles and miles of these planes. And, and if there are airplanes like there that you worked on, it's kind of painful to, to look at, too, but oh. nonetheless. You can uh, go up these stairs and have a look inside the cockpit, if you like. Well, let's go ahead and just keep on going. We're, okay. We're, I've been taking up an awful lot of yeah, your time. and, and uh, happy, happy to share the museum with your audience. Hopefully some of them come visit us. Oh, so I hope so. Time well spent, in my view. And, you know, like he said, I could go take a, uh, climb up the stairs. Almost every single one of these planes has a set of stairs going up to the cockpit so that accessible. you can see what's in there and, and take a look. Uh, this just, museum is very interactive. I'm, I'm impressed well, we with how interactive it is. Uh, we just walked as, by a bunch of simulators. We've got a, a fascinating collection of aircraft simulators. Uh, regrettably, none of them, we can't power them up and show you, but they're, they show how how simulators arose, uh, that silver one is from World War II. The, the student would sit inside, the instructor would sit on the side and peer in from behind looking at the student and again inflicting all sorts of, uh, <laughs> of emergencies and things to see if the student knew, knew how, to, how to react. So, and then this one here looks like it's on a, on a little pod like you're uh, outside the grocery store, a little horse. It, it does. It looks like a little child's ride, but it was, this is designed for for training general aviation students how to fly and uh, maintain proficiency. Good for that. Some of these are working around the nation. We're trying to track down the, we think this could be made operational. We're just trying to track down the tech data and make that happen. Now, over in our north hangar, I told you we had uh, two Hueys, and here's our gunship version. Uh, once again, this is kind of a Franken-Huey because uh, part of this came out of a, an awful lot. There were so many Hueys built and came back and had more than we needed. Some of the parts of this came from a, 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 a gunnery range oh. out near Salina, where this was used as a target. But <clears throat> part of the part of this helicopter was actually served in Vietnam as a gunship. And uh, interesting stories. Once again, I had the pleasure of meeting a fellow who flew these in Vietnam. Uh, some of his artifacts are in the showcase you see there. Okay. And uh, remarkable stories about what it was like. Helicopter warfare in Vietnam was astonishing. Just uh, nothing like it. And uh, just as piston, as jet engines revolutionized air travel, they rev revolutionized helicopters. Uh, here's, here's the engine that powered the Huey. You see how small it is. It fit in the back of your car. Yeah. And, uh, but it produced about 1,000 uh, horsepower to, wow. drive, to drive the main rotor and, and the accompanying tail rotor. Now, this is a smaller Huey. This is one, this is one of the earliest ones. And again, as... The Huey was developed and had a bigger cabin. They used the ones with bigger cabins to haul more troops, and the early ones became gunships. So uh, if we go to the other side of the helicopter, you'll see a rocket pod mounted there. On the nose, we've got a 40-millimeter uh, grenade launcher up there, but there's so many variations of, of, of ordnance that this helicopter could carry from guns and rockets and all sorts of things. 
and everybody flew in the Marines. The Navy, the Navy had gunship uh, Heleys. The, the group was called the Sea Wolves. An interesting story about them. But uh, say this is a signature aircraft of the Vietnam War, and uh, we feel fortunate to have a couple here. Yeah. This is an F-101 Voodoo. It was uh, designed as an interceptor. Again, when we were worried the Russians were coming, uh, the interceptor was okay, but it really excelled as a reconnaissance airplane. They made a single-seat version, put a bunch of cameras in the nose, and these things made a living down on the deck. Very dangerous flying. It had a lot of losses, but the Voodoo got in, got a lot of pictures before and after a, a strike in Vietnam. Uh, I think the first time Voodoo's used might have been in the uh, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, okay. One of my, about my favorite airplane is this F-105 Thunder Chief. This is the largest, heaviest, single-engine fighter the Air Force ever had. Now, it's supposed to be a fighter, but it was designed. It's got a bomb bay. What fighter has a bomb bay? Well, this one does. And its original intent was to be positioned all around Germany and Turkey with a nuclear weapon in its bay. Okay. And so if the, if the war ever started, 105s would deliver nuclear weapons to the targets, and maybe there would even be something to come home to. But... That's not what they were used for. They built about 800 F-105s, and when Vietnam started, these, were, these became the main weapon of these and B-52s. You see pictures of F-105s with just tons and tons of bombs. They used a bomb bay, put a big fuel tank in the belly, and they okay. needed it. They'd attach bombs to the, be to the uh, bottom of the belly. They attached bombs outboard of the wings. This carried a remarkable load. So you'd maximize the bomb load, put minimal fuel on, take off, hit a tank, or fill up. And uh, head north. And I find that really interesting. When you were mentioning that earlier, it was just, uh, I never thought that, you know, you'd take off with very little fuel. And then once you were flying, yeah, it just but makes sense. Maximize the load, fill it with bombs. And, you know, it's a bomb truck, so you'd fill it with bombs, just enough gas to meet the tanker, and off you go. Now, <clears throat> the bad thing was, I said they, they made 800 of these. About half of them were shot down in Vietnam. Not because it was a bad airplane, but because of the way we used them. Our planners had the airplanes fly the same route at the same time, at the same speed, day in, day out. And what with hind hindsight's always twenty that? well, hindsight's always twenty twenty. So and they were getting they were getting attacked by MIGs and attacked by uh, anti aircraft artillery. And as I said earlier, all the MIG had to do was menace these airplanes. And if the, if, the, if the pilot pickled his bombs, dropped them before he got to his target, the, the, Viet, the Vietnamese pilot won. Right. So the idea was to not let that happen. Now, you'll notice right here, this had something the F-4 didn't have. You see the rotary cannon, the 20 millimeter. Say, that's a rotary gun there. The F-105 has a tiny wing. It's incredibly heavy. It's got no business dogfighting with smaller, nimble MiGs. But they often did. And 105 pilots shot down a lot of MiGs. They... More MiGs are lost than 105 guns and the other way around. Huh. A remarkable airplane. There was a two-seat version that uh, was ostensibly a trainer, but they turned it into one of the very first uh, uh, wild weasel airplanes. Their job was to go in ahead of the, the, the fighter-bomber package, get the, uh, get the SAM missile, surface-air missile radars to light up. And when, they, when the radar came up, more electronic warfare, they'd spot it and kill it with either an a anti-radiation missile designed to take out the, the radar. Because if the radar's not working, you don't have to worry about the missiles. Or just drop a bomb on it, whatever. Or even right. the gun. You used them all. Very dangerous flying. You were the first in, last out. And uh, as 
tough line of work, but it saved a lot of, a lot of other people's lives. 105 is an amazing airplane. We've got several uh, ejection seats on display. This is one that you can see it's only used once. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> saved the life of its pilot. That was an F-105 that departed McConnell Air Force Base near Wichita. Had something happen on takeoff, and the pilot hit the handles, got out, and uh, lived to tell the tale. I was going to say, it looks like it was a pretty rough landing. We have another ejection seat we I walked by that. earlier. Yeah, I saw that. That came from a, a Martin B-57, RB-57A that was flown by my national, my Air National Guard unit uh, back in the 70s in Hutchinson before they moved to Topeka. In that case, very interesting story, the pilot was flying, and a, a strap on his sleeve caught the ejection. You see how this oh. ejection he has a closed loop? Uh-huh. Well, on this one, it had two little arms, and that's that... That loop caught on that and began the inadvertently began the the ejection procedure. What that the first thing he did was a knife cuts the the push rod to the elevator. So now you can't pitch the airplane up and down. And it blew the canopy off the top of the airplane to prepare for ejection. But after you pull that up, then there's another action to take that would actually kick the seat out. And so now the pilot and lost his helmet when that happened. He can't talk on the radio. He really can't control the airplane other than using the throttles. So he writes on his knee pad, get out, and he hands the note to his navigator who's sitting down below him. So he used that seat that we have to eject. That saved his life. The, uh, the pilot airplane didn't survive the, the, the crash. He was attempting to put it down in the field, and that's hard to do. And coincidentally, the fellow who survived in that seat ends up being the music teacher for my predecessor here. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's, so ejection seats are great when uh, when they work and all that. They're, right after that, they redesigned that seat to eliminate that that, that arm sticking out. Yeah, catch, yeah. I could see that. Yeah, it'd be pretty frustrating about the time you realized what you'd done. And we were just over at the Evil Knievel Museum, and when we were talking to them, they were saying that uh, when he was over in uh, England making his jump. He knew that after he looked at the British buses being wider and all that, he knew he wasn't going to make it, but he already had 90,000 people there, so he wanted yeah, you to, gotta try. to jump anyway. You know, oh, man. You're going, you're going, ah, that's got to hurt, you know, just, just thinking you're going to take off and, and uh, no, not make it. That wasn't a job you call in sick. I don't feel well today. I don't yeah, think I'll... Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, okay, so... What are my choices here? I eject to finish the ejection process or try and land it. Exactly. Well, I guess you got to consider when you're ejecting, too, what's underneath you as far as who you're going to kill on the ground. Well, yeah, and a lot of guys have lost their lives because they tried to steer the airplane clear of a house or a school or this or that. And I, so. I could see that as being a, a moral uh, dilemma. What do you do? That's, that's tough. We've got a few machines sitting outside. We, we try to keep everything inside, but as you can see, we've just about run out of real estate. Um, right outside the, the front of the museum is a Lion Fire Bee. It was an early drone used for a variety of things. Some were launched from C-130s and uh, flown over very dangerous parts of North Vietnam to get photographs, bring them back. Others were used for uh, just targets, for uh, teaching gunnery to, uh, to fighter pilots, wide range of things. And uh, we've got a few vehicles that sit outside. A Scorpion is a, was an attempt at a lightweight uh, tank destroyer, and it proved to be unsuitable. It was something that could be airdropped from a cargo airplane. It didn't work out, but we've got one. It looks kind of like a small tank is what exactly. it looks like. 
We've got a duck. That's a World War II vintage. Everybody knows what a duck is. That you can An get rides on the lake. Vehicle and amphibious truck, I guess. And then we've got a very extraordinary looking uh, tra uh, tractor here. Yeah, it's a, got a big cab and it's got two steering wheels. The, the cab is set up to where you can drive it either way, forward or back from either one of the stations. It was originally designed to tow the B-36 bomber, the world's the largest bomber that's ever been in American service. Six, six pusher uh, I, I, piston engines and four jets. Six turning, four burning. The other airplane we have sitting outside is a Lockheed EC-121 Warning Star. Uh, people will know it as a Air Force version of the Constellation. Okay. A lot of folks think that the Connie was the most beautiful piston airplane ever designed with a graceful, looks like a dolphin in a lot of ways. Three tails, that's the most instinctive thing. The Air Force added um, heel tanks to the tips. And the most prominent feature on the airplane is this giant fairing under the belly that uh, housed a big radar antenna. When this airplane was new, it had a fairing on top. It looked like a shark fin. Okay. And with improvements in, in radars, and they were able to get rid of that shark fin. This airplane came to this museum in 1983. It ended its days with the Air Force Reserve in Florida in uh, the late 70s. And it, we, we were able to get it and uh, had it flown in here in 83. Now, it's sitting outside. We've got power run to it. We've completed the restoration of the interior. Now we have to figure out how we're going to paint it, where it sits outside. And there will be a treat, I'm sure, but oh, yeah. we'll soon find out. The airplane began life in the <clears throat> in the late in the early 50s, and it, it spent the first third of its life providing uh, radar coverage out over the, the Atlantic. Again, we were worried the Russians were coming, so we always had to had radars airborne, and that's that was the job of this airplane to watch for incoming Soviet bombers coming over the over the uh, Arctic, whatever. So this tended to operate out of Iceland, Greenland, uh, Goose Bay, Canada, other places. Uh, airborne alert looking for bombers. Then it did the same thing on the west coast and out over the Pacific. Then it went to Vietnam where it, it helped uh, helped with uh, air, with uh, rescuing downed air crews, giving a warning with MiGs launched to intercept uh, raids, the F-105s like we just talked about. Then it came back to the States and flew it, finished out its days with the, Army, with the Air Force Reserve uh, flying out of Florida. And uh, we can go upstairs and have a look inside. Like I said, the interior is restored. The thing that people find fascinating, that everybody knows about the E3A WACs, the airborne radar station. It looks like an airline with a big frisbee right, right. that rotates on top. When you see pictures of the crew in there, everybody's sitting at a at a computer screen and keyboard, and everybody sees and what's going on all at once. Everybody's on the same sheet of music. Before that came along, wow. we had the EC-121. And what you see here... Are, <clears throat> The long tube, the, the, obviously the front end of the cockpit, is where the, the pilot and the flight engineer operate. There's a small rest area up there, but the air crew wasn't read in on, didn't know the whole story of what was going on back here, the different security clearance. As you come back, you come back past the navigator section and then and into the, the business section of the airplane. And here we have, we'll, we'll get it, we'll, we'll move, we just entered from the tail and we'll move forward and see what a radar looked like back then. It's pretty amazing. But as, we, as I describe it, moving from the nose to the tail, after we come past the radar section, the navigator section, uh, we come across the, uh, the business end of the airplane. And there's about six, six radar stations here. And the way it worked was that each radar operator, there's a single radar, but each one is, is 
tracking a different sector, a different piece of the pie, if you will. And when somebody spotted something, they'd announce on an intercom, the radio operators, the mission commander, and the, the two fellows who recorded what was going on, while on headset, on intercom. So a radio operator, I've got a, got a bogey, an unknown contact, at this location, this air altitude, and this airspeed. And you report that. There are two fellows sitting behind this large piece of plexiglass that uh, would, was used to display to the mission commander sending the aisle. And so they would mark on this piece of plexiglass the position of the bogey air, and information, airspeed, uh, direction, all that sort of thing. In our airplane, we've got a map put up behind the plexiglass to help people appreciate what they're looking at. The plexiglass depicts the very last mission this airplane flew out of Homestead. And so you see by looking at this that we see the lower peninsula of Florida and most of the island of Cuba and the markings that the, uh, the crew left after the last flight. So the guys behind are jump up and they, instead of a computer screen, everything's real time and what's going on. These guys are armed with a grease pencil and a rag. And they leap up and on the plexiglass they write on bogey, the airspeed, bearing, all that stuff. But they got to write backwards because they're on that side of the plexiglass. Oh. The mission commander's standing in the aisle here. So they've got to write it backwards so the mission commander can understand what he's looking at. Yeah. And so oh, everything's moving. So in a couple of minutes, they got to wipe that off and remark it. Now it's over here. And, all, and it's all written and, backwards. And, and they're moving on top of that. I mean, the airplanes don't, it's like driving down a bumpy road sometimes. So before computers, you had a grease pencil and a rag, and you wrote backwards on a piece of plexiglass. And now it's all networked inside the airplane and, and sent out to the world uh, through secure means. So no more grease pencils, at least not as many as they once did. So that's what this is. And in the back are some more, uh, there are some bunks here. This airplane could fly for 16, 17 hours, just go up okay. in orbit looking for bad guys, looking for Soviet bombers that happily never came. So to do that, you got to have a couple crews. So there was a place to go up front and get something to eat or drink, uh, stretch out, play cards, whatever, you know, to kill a little time when, when, you're, when you're taking a break. But I guess what I find remarkable to me after 30 years on KC-135s full of jet fuel Jet fuel that we, if we had a bucket and threw a match in, lit match in, the match would go out. This airplane was full of 16, 18 hours worth of, of 115, 145 high octane aviation gasoline that didn't react well to sparks or flames or things like that. And, and there were a lot of, there were a number of accidents associated with, you know, flying airplanes with cranky, piston engines right and overheating and sparking and all that sort of thing so well, we, i want to describe this plane a little bit because this is just so cool i mean like you said it's a tube and you've got the different sections you've got your cockpit up here you've got like you said the uh, this here's where they would eat or be able to get whatever there's uh two four six eight ten twelve there's enough for 12 people to sit here but then as you come back you pass a restroom and a little kitchenette area, and then you've got, it, it looks like the old uh, operators type setups, you know, with all these panels with computers and switches and uh, a big screen in front of you to take a look at uh, the radar and where it's blipping and what it's doing. And, and if any, any of your, your listeners who have uh, been aboard a World War II submarine at a museum or something... There you go. It's I a bit cozy say, here. I was going to say, it's a bit like a submarine. Exactly. You know? uh, 
yeah, this is just unbelievable. And, and you go back, there's just all these different workstations. And it's interesting that they had them all separated to where these people didn't yep. know really what they were, what the others were doing. Like the radio op radio operator is right across from a navigator, and right above you is an astrodome where the 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 um, navigator would stand on a stool and shoot the the angle of the sun or the stars. <laughs> wow! And, and yeah, that's foolproof. Like, like exactly. you see in a ship. Exactly. What I was going to point out is that I think you can see the the, the electromagnet to the radar here. This is right. the heart of the the radar. The big pod below is just a fairing for the okay. antenna rotating. But this is the heart of the radar. Uh, things have changed a little bit in radar design since then. Again, uh, a few years ago, I had the pleasure of spending time on this airplane with a fellow who maintained the radar system on this airplane in this squadron. Really? And Now, I'll take his word for it. This looks like it could, as big as this electromagnet is, I'm, I suspect there might be something to this. I don't know. But he says that as you, when this thing was fully powered up, as you walk down the aisle... The keys in your pocket would—you'd feel them being drawn toward the, the electromagnet. And you look how big this thing is. Yeah, yeah, you can and, uh, see that. There, that might be a plausible story. Might might just be plausible. Wow. I I believe my. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't see how seemed, that couldn't be a possibility. He he's incredible to me, not not prone to exaggeration, and that may well have been the case. It's. So wow. Well, so, so have we seen pretty much here? I think I think we've done it. Okay. That's uh. I, th I think that's it. Uh, Man, quick I drive still by appreciate of, your time showing us through all this. Do you guys have a website that uh, we do? If somebody uh, wants to see and gallery and some of that with it, there, there's a lot on our website, and we're about to we're about to upgrade it. It looks a little dated, but uh, there's a lot of interesting information we we update from time to time. If you go to Combat Air Museum, all one word, CombatAirMuseum.org. Okay. You can uh, see more about the airplanes we've just talked about here. Look at our latest newsletter we publish about every two months. Uh, a lot of other information. We have a Facebook page, too. I've put up a lot of uh, historical information. Not a lot of museum news lately because of the cold and the pandemic right. have really cut back our operations. But it's getting warm. We're starting to work on airplanes again, so there'll be more museum news. But between the, our Facebook page and uh, our, our website, I think you'll find a lot of information here. Cool. And you guys are all volunteer. We have one full-time employee. That's me. Okay. And then we have a part-time office manager, but everybody else for volunteers. One for our volunteers wouldn't have anything, wouldn't have anything to accomplish or, or get done here. Now, so. what's it cost to get in here? Adults pay seven dollars. Kids between the ages of five and seventeen are five dollars. Currently serving uh, members of the military are five dollars, and kids under five are free. And if you bring a group of ten or more, we knock off a couple bucks. Wow! So, really a reasonable so. price to get in to see some of this kind of stuff. This is just a fantastic museum, and, and uh, I'm glad that I was told to come over here and, and talk with you, and I'm glad that you took your time to, to spend with me today. Well, we're happy to, happy to share this with your, with your listeners. I hope some of them can make it out here, and uh, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Good. Me too. So the way I finish out these things is I say the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore and see what there is because there is so much. And everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. Haul the roll and go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?